people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. almost accidentally bumped into what looked to me like a new genre that New Hollywood was fast inventing. It struck me as a really interesting opportunity to start to think seriously about what it means for a whole new genre to appear and begin to name itself in that way. I first noticed it really on the sleeves of VHS videos in video stores and in trade press reviews. To me, I think the term became most real through those cheaper end straight-to-video films. I think the first time I heard the term erotic thriller was probably when I auditioned for Undercover. When my agent said erotic thriller and I said, well, what is that? Well, you know, like nine and a half weeks. Not a fan of the phrase erotic thriller. It just sounds a little naughty, a little naughtier maybe than I want to be. There was always that element of danger in an erotic thriller, and it was usually the woman who was dangerous. In these erotic thrillers, these women were beautiful and sexy, but often deadly. I like the term a lot, erotic thriller. I thought erotic thriller was exactly what it was. It was just a perfect meld of exactly what these movies were. Hey folks, welcome to a very special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Anthony Penta. He is the writer, director, camera person, voiceover, all kinds of stuff for the new documentary slash video essay, We Kill for Love. It is an extensive look at the erotic thrillers, a interestingly unique phenomenon that happened in the United States back in the 80s and 90s. I really had a great time watching this documentary and talking with Anthony. To find out more about the movie, check out yellowveilpictures.com, our old friend Joe Yannick's company. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Before we even start to talk about We Kill for Love, I want to know more about you and how you got involved with filmmaking, because this is not your first rodeo. When I was an undergrad, I did everything. This was a long time ago in the Detroit area in the 1990s. I tried to take a stab at everything. I wrote, I tried fine art, painting and drawing. I was always good at drawing. And I worked at the library. And I think working the night shift as a bookshelver at the library, the college library, was the best thing that has ever happened to my intellectual development. Everything passed through my hands, every book. And I would take long breaks late at night with whatever stack of books I'd found that night, whether they were about business or philosophy or art or film, and I would just read them. And I think this was, for me, the start of my interest in film. One of the things I would do after working at the library is I would walk up to Hollywood Video in Ypsilanti, Michigan, after work, and I'd rent movies and take them home. 
And one night I remember looking for a movie to rent. It was in the late 1990s. And there was this movie on the shelf called 2001, A Space Odyssey. And it had this really boring picture on the cover, an illustration of astronauts on some lunar landscape. I remember someone telling me at one time that it was a good movie. It looked really boring, but I decided I'll just rent this thing and see what happens. And over the next week, watching the movie over and over again, I had this sort of epiphany. I just didn't understand what I was seeing. It took a long time of watching and rewatching this movie to come to grips with what I was seeing, and particularly the final 20 minutes of the movie, an astronaut leaves a spaceship and goes off towards a massive monolith that's floating in outer space because he's tre- he's been locked out of the spacecraft. And he goes towards this monolith and he's sort of shot out into space and there begins this long, for lack of a better word, psychedelic sequence in which the person is shot out over space and time and appears to re-experience the history of the birth of the universe and eventually winds up in a kind of Louis XIV room with the monolith. The sequence happens after two hours of interesting but incredibly banal dialogue of hyper-controlled filmmaking that just placidly presents this banal futuristic world. And then there's this sequence. I remember during this sequence just checking my watch, and for the first time in my life, I thought, who is responsible for what I'm seeing? Who is the wizard behind the curtain that is responsible for this? Before 2001 A Space Odyssey, I loved comedies. I loved Mel Brooks movies. I'm very close to my older brother, Patrick. Patrick and I grew up just loving the Mel Brooks comedies and Caddyshack. And I watched movies for fun. I watched movies because they were entertaining. But 2001 A Space Odyssey changed that. Suddenly, I looked at movies as this strange work of art that some strange person was responsible for making. And so, going back to the night shift at the library, I found a book about this film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I learned that it was made by a reclusive genius named Stanley Kubrick. And so I began reading about Stanley Kubrick and about how films were made, and it seemed to me like a sorcerer's medium. It was incredibly difficult. It was required mastery of a hugely complex gamut of pieces of technology. And when all was said and done, if you were somehow able to learn about exposure and frame rates and film stocks and cameras and lenses, the result of this, if you read the spell books and understood them and used them, the result is that you could cast spells like 2001 A Space Odyssey. And these spells were like powerful works of art. With this in mind, this is how I looked at it. I walked up to the Salvation Army and bought a Super 8 camera. I went to the local public access television station, took the classes, and began checking out VHS video gear. And I began making my own movies. And I was in my mid-20s at the time. and then that was all I ever did. Everything else that I did before that, the writing, the drawing, the painting, all of that fell by the wayside. 
over the course of a couple of years, I just became a filmmaker. And for many years, I made movies. I was always trying to make them better and better. I was always failing, but then succeeding and then failing and then succeeding. At every step of the way, I was always prepared to give it up. Each movie was like, okay, that last one almost turned out good. This time I'll try to make one and see if I can fix the problems of the previous one. And I would always get just enough return on the investment that it would pay off. And I'd go, all right, we'll see what happens. Like all young filmmakers, I made a unwatchable feature film set in the Victorian era. It took years to make. I loved it, <laughs> but it was unusable. And then I said, not going to make that mistake again of making a feature length work. And a friend of mine said, why don't you adapt a short story by this horror writer, H.P. Lovecraft? There's this whole film festival in Portland, Oregon called the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. And this friend of mine was an actor in all my early movies. I used him for everything. And so I said, great. And so I spent a week and I adapted an H.P. Lovecraft story called The Hound about two grave-robbing intellectuals who rob a cursed amulet from a corpse, and then they're haunted by some revenant of that corpse who kills one of them, and the whole story is written. The other person is convinced that they're about to be killed, and so they're on the verge of committing suicide. It's just a typical H.P. Lovecraft sort of thing. And I adapted it, and it just turned out really well, and it did get into the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, and the director of that festival, Andrew Migliori, put it on VHS tape, and the next thing I knew, I was getting royalty checks. Every six months, I'd get a check for like five or $600, and back then, that was like my name was on a videotape, and I was getting royalty checks for a movie I made, and so I thought I should just keep going with this thing. It just built up to there, and eventually I wound up going to graduate school, and I now work professionally as a video producer. And We Kill for Love is something I made in secret, on the side, as I'm working professionally full-time making movies. I mostly make like short-form documentaries and promotional videos for a living. What was the inspiration for We Kill for Love? Were you a big fan of erotic thrillers from way back, or was this a relatively new thing for you? In around 2015, 2016, I was living in Chicago, working as a video producer in Chicago, and had to take long bus rides. And I remember asking myself, I wonder if there are more movies like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct, movies I always really liked. I went from age 20 to 30 in the 1990s, and those long walks up to Hollywood Video in Ypsilanti, Michigan, I rented some of these movies, and I particularly remember late at night, turning on cable television and seeing these ethereal, mysterious movies. And there was one movie in particular that I remembered a scene from, but I had no idea who the actors were or who made it. But the scene was a guy comes home with his boss and they're both drunk. And the guy has this powerfully attractive blonde wife. And they're all hanging out together. And at one moment, the guy allows his boss to go in the kitchen where his wife is making drinks. And the guy's drunk boss basically sexually molests the guy's wife. 
as he looks on and lets it happen. And I had this scene stuck in my head for years. And I knew it was one of these ethereal, mysterious late night movies that I'd seen a long time ago. I thought, I'm going to find this movie. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start combing through movies. I suspected it was a thriller of some kind, but I wasn't sure. I didn't know who was in it. In the year 2015, there was not a lot of information readily available about the so-called erotic thriller on the internet. If you were to Google the erotic thriller at that time, it was always the same articles. It was the top 15 erotic thrillers ever, and it would be Basic Instinct, Jade, Body of Evidence, Eyes Wide Shut. The same dozen studio films came up every time in every search. There was no Wikipedia article on the film genre at the time. There was no information about them. And so I just bought a VCR and a Laserdisc player, and I started getting movies from eBay by searching eBay. I started haunting clandestine file trading sites, looking for movies that were thrillers, rated R thrillers from the 1990s. And I think probably the first thing I found, which was really useful, was the actors. It doesn't take long when you're watching these movies, that you see that the same sort of group of actors reappears in film after film. In some films, they play bit parts. In some films, they're the starring role, right? There's hardly a single actor that doesn't have at least one movie where they're the star of it, right? And so spreading like a stain on a tablecloth, I started finding actors and getting their movies. And I could be reasonably sure that if I found an actor like Monique Parent, Kira Reed, Nancy O'Brien, Doug Jeffrey, Dan Anderson, Leanne Beeman, Gabriella Hall, Landon Hall, John Henry Richardson, the list goes on. If I found one person and then just got their movies, I would be reasonably sure to find a bunch of erotic thrillers because this group, this special group of people seemed to only perform in this special kind of movie. And I couldn't believe the experience one day when I popped a videotape into the VCR and sat back and watched the movie called Scorned, directed by and starring Andrew Stevens and Shannon Tweed. And lo and behold, the scene arrived. The guy comes home with his boss. They're both drunk. He goes into the kitchen and it's Shannon Tweed. And it was just an incredible moment. But by that time, I'd watched about a hundred of these movies. There was no going back. I think that scene was like some sort of message from the gods that's, okay, you've worked very hard to arrive at this moment. And so this is the gateway now that we're putting our official seal of approval on your adventure. It was like that scene in Clash of the Titans where they like provide a shield for Perseus or a sword. It's like he fi he finally gets to the point they're like, "Okay, we're going to help you out. Here's a magic item. I found the movie Scorned, and by that time there was no going back. I had begun maintaining a database of these movies as I began finding them, and it got to 100 movies. And this was in Chicago. And one day I had this brainwave and I thought, I wonder if anyone's written books about 1990s era 
erotic thrillers, if I go to the library and get a book, maybe these books will contain movies I can add to my growing spreadsheet. And I just stupidly never did this before. And I couldn't believe when I found a whole book about these lost movies called The Erotic Thriller in Contemporary Cinema, written by a UK academic, Linda Ruth Williams. And I just I cannot tell you the magical experience of riding the bus to work and thumbing through this book and seeing long discussions of films like Carnal Crimes, Mirror Images, movies that I thought no one but me had seen <laughs> since they had been on cable television. And this British academic, this woman had written a whole book about them. Moreover, she had actually, during the writing of the book, she had come to California found some of the practitioners, the writers, directors of these movies, and had interviewed them, and her book published interviews with them. So this was an early prompt for me, I think, seeing these interviews with the practitioners alongside prolonged analysis of the films that made me think that extending this work into a more popular format, like the kind I specialized in, which was documentary filmmaking, would be possible. And so that was the dawn of the realization that maybe a documentary about these movies was possible. You're setting yourself up. You've got the spreadsheet. You're reading the academic book. You've got this massive collection. You're right there. Well, what's that next step to be like, oh, now I'm going to continue to watch movies, create more of a database, or is it now I'm going to reach out to some people. Like, what's that step for you? I formally decided to make the movie because two overlapping discoveries. And in a nutshell, one, it was that I discovered the direct-to-video erotic thriller to be roughly the same size and shape as film noir, which is, film noir is a brand name. It's hugely successful. Genre-like film movement, everyone knows about it. Like It's a household word. And overlapped on this, I just found that the films had been lost in time and that they had been treated really badly in the roughly 30 years since they'd been made. And the discourse around them, wherever it was found, was really terrible, whether it was in IMDb movie reviews or Amazon reviews or in blogs online or whatever. The discourse around them was terrible. So the first discovery was that it was the same size and shape as film noir. I realized that as I was maintaining my spreadsheet, it went from 100 movies to 200 to 300. And when it got over 500 movies, I thought, wait a minute, this is way more movies than I thought possible. And it's when I began interviewing people, it's more movies than they thought possible. When I interviewed director Fred Olin Ray at his home when he lived here in Studio City, California, I asked him how many movies he thought were made. And he said maybe a hundred, couple hundred tops. When I told him that I'd found over 600 verifiable erotic thrillers, he just laughed out loud. He couldn't believe that there were that many movies. And I have Michael F. Keeney's film noir guide here on the shelf behind me. And Michael F. Keeney lists 750 films in the roll call of film noir. I've since found over 700 direct-to-video erotic thrillers. So the number was there. But also, as the academic books indicated, the direct-to-video erotic thrillers are all united by these common themes and tropes. The erotic thriller is animated by certain abstractions. 
Like, for instance, that desire is dangerous, that sex is dangerous. And like film noir, it has certain stylistic eccentricities. In many ways, the erotic thriller is a sort of neon noir in its visual look. It's for many of them, they're easily recognizable by the visual eccentricities that they have. Like film noir, there was a shadow pantheon of actors whom I discovered while watching the films that are specific to these movies. Film noir has Elizabeth Scott, Alan Ladd, Marie Windsor, on and on, all these people that are easily and readily recognizable film noir actors. And the erotic thriller has its pantheon. And I think that the erotic thriller pantheon of actors is even more cohesive than the world of Film noir movies were made within the context of a broader sort of Hollywood endeavor. And a lot of actors like Humphrey Bogart, of course, he was in movies that were not film noir movies, great Hollywood movies. But there was a lot of actors. It's difficult to find an actor like Gabriella Hall, who's not specifically in movies like this. Their domain was these movies. So when I discovered that it was the same size and shape as film noir, this for me made the movement made the erotic thriller that much more important. And I think the overlapping discovery after this, the overlapping thing that prompted me to make the movie was that like a house that had been forgotten, anyone who grows up and has lived in Michigan, which I think you have. I'm there right now. Anyone who's lived in Michigan or Virginia knows that every now and again, a house gets abandoned in the woods. You find these houses that just like somebody has forgotten about. And eventually, People find those houses. The wrong people find them. And they get covered with graffiti. The windows get broken out. The houses get looted. People just go there to drink beer after school. They build fire pits. And you can take a house that was once a really lovely Victorian home, and it just becomes this derelict in the woods. And I think that's what happened to the direct-to-video erotic thriller, this whole movement in the 30 years since that they'd stopped making them, that the movies had been adopted by this diffuse tribe of softcore enthusiasts, who I can only assume are predominantly men, and they were treated horribly by this group. The movies were traded on clandestine file trading sites and were only looked at of value for the amount of female nudity that's in them. There were blogs that talked openly about the movies and evaluated them merely on the basis of how much nudity the certain female actors exposed in, in whatever movies or how much sex content or whether there was a girl-girl scene between so-and-so-and-so. It was really ugly. As a matter of fact, there was a whole reference book written about this that must have been an incredible chore. It's called... Dr. Skin's Skin Cyclopedia, the A to Z encyclopedia for how to find your favorite actresses naked. There's a certain respect I have for this because I know the amount of work it takes to track down these movies and these actors, and this person did it. But the movie is just an A to Z listing of female actors. And in the grossest of possible terms, we'll list actors like Monique Parent, and the descriptions will be things like, in this movie, Monique flashes her marvelous memories twice, and it's just horrible. And as I was really becoming enchanted with the ethereal 
romantic mystery of these movies and all these actors, I began discovering that there's this one group of people that had adopted them. In some sense, I learned a lot from this group because they trade the films for this one exploitable element, female nudity. Because of that, they collect them. And I was able to find a lot of movies, find out a lot about the movies from them, even if the discourse was just like an unbelievably low level among this group. This sounds like hyperbole, but it really isn't. I had this sort of moment with these films where I imagined all of the actors of these movies, Shannon Weary, Delia Shepard, Brad Bartram, Dan Anderson. I imagined them to be like these sort of mythical sirens calling to me from some distant shore. And what they were whispering over the waves was, who will tell our story? Anthony, you can't let it end like this. You can't let the last word about us be Dr. Skin's Skin Cyclopedia. And I realized at the time that I had the skill to tell this story. I had the tools at my disposal. And uh, I didn't have much else to do with my life. I don't have children. I wasn't married. And I realized, I guess I could do this, could respond to this call and make this movie. As the academic writers had pointed out, there was value in it. Linda Ruth Williams' book was a model that could be used. And my only, the only barrier that I had was that everyone who made them lived in California. So I got a job in California and I moved here right away and I started making the movie. I remember driving the U-Haul through Arizona, talking to my older brother, Patrick, who was in the U-Haul next to me, telling him, I'm going to make a movie about this subject and it's going to be called We Kill for Love. That's how it all started. When I got here, as soon as I got here, I started tracking people down. 2017, 2016. So it was about seven years ago. I know with Films Noir, there were studios, there were the outside of the studios, the uh, Poverty Row, those kind of things. But you had that machine to be able to make all of these films at that point. What was the machine behind the erotic thrillers? Was there a machine or was it just, obviously there's the confluence of events between cable, VCRs, you've got the means of, of taking these things in, but what's the means of production? What is their, what's the framework to actually build these, to shoot these movies? There was a machine and the combustion engine was that in the late 1970s and early 1980s, two technologically driven platforms arrived. One was the VHS tape rentals and the other one was cable television. Both of those arrived at roughly the same time. At that time, in response to cultural shifts of the 1960s and 70s, the 1980s reevaluated what people wanted to see, what things were allowable, and that sort of stuff. The 1980s was a time where culturally America trended upscale. Anyone who remembers growing up in the 1970s remembers that the 1970s revered the authenticity of poverty. Television shows like Sanford and Son and The Jeffersons and Archie Bunker, even Mork and Mindy. I 
recently went back and watched a couple episodes of Mork and Mindy, and I don't know if you've ever spent time looking around at Mindy's apartment with all the wicker furniture and the books on the shelf about public education and all that stuff. It's just all so homespun and 1970s era. In the 1980s, you had the sudden cultural revolution where people wanted the future and they wanted it now. It was a time of personal computers, arcade games, the tech boom, and that Patrick Nagel guy was painting those pastel portraits of incredibly determined-looking women. I used to stare at those pastel portraits in the mall for hours, and I think that for me, even today, those pastel portraits of women in their jogging outfits with a Walkman on their arm and those things really typified what people wanted to see about themselves, like they were looking in a mirror. So in response to these cultural shifts with society trending upscale in America, these two technology platforms arrived. And so the mandate on high was that we were not going back to the guy-oriented grindhouse days of the 1970s that cable television isn't the new peep show and it's not for the trench coat brigade. That, as Bob Mayer quotes Bridget Potter, the HBO, the vice president of programming for HBO in his book Inside HBO, they knew that adults wanted erotica. But she said, okay, we'll give it to them, but it can be spicy, but not vulgar. I believe that's the quote that she's in. David Andrews quotes this in his book on softcore also. and. At that time, Christy Hefner, Hugh Hefner's daughter, took the reins of Playboy and dragged it into the 1980s as a media empire, as a TV channel. And she hired a husband and wife team to be the programmers. Bob and Ann Shanks were the, I think it's significant that a husband and wife couple were hired to start programming erotica for the Playboy channel. So, It seems evident when you look into the history of this with women at the top of programming hierarchies, husband and wife couples being chose to program erotica for America, that people wanted erotica. There was a need for it, but it had to take place within the context of 1980s culture. And that meant porn was out. And even porn movies where they cut the naughty bits out and stuff like Playboy did in the early days. And so I think America didn't know it. But they were primed for a new kind of erotica, and that was the landscape in which the erotic thriller arrived. It, they, there are certain early films that came out, direct-to-video films, that exploited this new VHS t- tape rental landscape, this new cable television landscape. They discovered that they could make movies directly for this landscape and bypass theaters completely. And it took Hollywood a while to catch on to this. Hollywood was really late to the game. The direct-to-video films flooded in and flooded the market. And early films, which we now look at, that seem a bit rudimentary, like Andrew Stevens' Night Eyes. It's actually Jack Mundra's Night Eyes is the director. It came from an idea that Andrew Stevens had. They were massively successful in this new landscape. And so the engine, I would say the cultural and economic engine for the erotic thriller started there. It started with the 
these two technological platforms which adopted an anti-pornography stance but needed to provide erotica. And I could go on on this subject, but I think that this subject in particular is a really interesting one because erotica was being developed on many fronts at this time, and a lot of people were auditioning erotica to see what would happen. There were the sword and sandal films like the Amazons or Barbarian Queen. They started putting softcore content in these movies, nude people. There were the, you remember the, the wave of preppy boarding school movies. There, there were the beach movies like Malibu Beach Girls and Summer Job movies where they were all set in beach communities and there were sort of light comedies and that sort of thing. So America was experimenting with film genres that could encapsulate softcore content. And I think that the erotic thriller was the first genre to arrive to do, but it within the, I think it was the thriller part of the equation that made it massively successful and also allowed the genre to begin taking itself seriously. The beach movies and the sword and sandal movies and the prep school movies, the madcap comedy movies, they were D-class-A movies. Having softcore in the context of these sorts of comedies or sword and sandal films the erotica seemed to, it seems to me, seemed to work a lot better and be more interesting within the context of these noirish crime thrillers. And I think that's what caused the erotic thriller to really become a formula where people say, oh, this is a great package. This is a great medium that we can use to encapsulate this new kind of erotica that people are interested in. And we can begin asking questions about it. And then my documentary, We Kill for Love, is largely bound up in investigating and extrapolating a lot of these themes and tropes and ideas that began getting worked through in these movies. I'm sure it didn't hurt either that the 1980s, you've got the AIDS crisis going on, which is telling us that sex is dangerous. So here we have all these people having sex and there's danger involved with murder or other things that are out there. One aspect of the erotic thriller that comes up in online film criticism and on social media frequently is the idea that the erotic thriller is a response to the AIDS crisis, given that both of them seem to rise and fall at almost exactly the same time. I can comment on that. I think it's a really interesting thing. But in order to comment on it, I have to talk about Sesame Street. The children's television show Sesame Street, which took place in a fantastical New York City neighborhood, starred a character named Big Bird. And Big Bird was a sort of improbably tall, seven-foot-tall, yellow, canary-like bird who had the sort of mental capacity and emotional maturity of like a seven-year-old. And Big Bird would affably walk around the neighborhood and meet like human adults, characters on the show, and other Muppet characters like himself. And every now and again, Big Bird would turn a corner and meet a special friend of his. There was an improbably large mastodon-like Muppet called the Snuffleupagus. And Big Bird would have these sort of serious conversations with the Snuffleupagus. And there was always a moment where Big Bird would walk away, turn a corner, and run into a human adult and say, hey, you've got to come meet my friend the Snuffleupagus. He's right here. Yeah, come along. And they'd turn the corner and then magically the Snuffleupagus was just gone. 
And when you're seven years old and you're watching Sesame Street, this is a really frustrating experience that Big Bird is never able to convince the other real people on the show this thing, the Snuffleupagus, exists. He was just talking to the Snuffleupagus, right? And so one day, the Children's Television Workshop, which is the company that owns Sesame Street, they had a kind of board meeting, and they decided that it was not a good idea that the Snuffleupagus was this thing that Big Bird could never communicate to the human adults on the show, because they thought that the Snuffleupagus might, in some oblique psychological way, be representative of childhood abuse, and that Big Bird's inability to communicate the existence of the Snuffleupagus was somehow on their show enabling or motivating the inability that children might have who watch the show to communicate their own abuse to other adults. And they didn't want to be responsible for maintaining this feedback loop. And so the important thing about the Snuffleupagus in this regard is that the Snuffleupagus encapsulated and masked Big Bird's childhood abuse. That the childhood abuse was too horrific for Big Bird to face directly. And so Big Bird encapsulated and masked his abuse with this improbable Muppet. And it, that Muppet, the Snuffleupagus, allowed Big Bird to talk to his abuse in a safe way. It allowed him to see his abuse externally in a way that allowed him so that he didn't have to face it directly. So, when people online, when armchair film reviewers or people on social media say that the erotic thriller as a story genre was animated by and a response to the AIDS crisis, because in both things, the real AIDS crisis and the imaginary story genre, sex is dangerous. When they say that, what they're saying is that I, the audience, am Big Bird, and the erotic thriller is my snuffleupagus. That the erotic thriller allows me to interact with something that's too horrific to face directly. And so I've, the erotic thriller encapsulates and masks the horror of a sexually transmitted disease. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on when people talk about it, the erotic thriller and AIDS in this way. And my response to that is, I'll admit that it's really interesting. It's interesting to think of the erotic thriller in this way, as encapsulating and masking things that are too horrific for us to face directly, or too scary. But I am also wonder that I don't know if people are that complicated. It begs the question, which we don't have, which would be an alternate universe in which we cure AIDS. As soon as it comes out, there was a pill, and you just take a pill and it cures it immediately. Would the erotic thriller have become a story genre like it did? Would it have taken off and produced 700 films without AIDS? We don't know. There's no control experiment. We only have this the reality of sex being actually dangerous because it can transmit a disease that kills you in a story genre in which sexual desire is dangerous. And so 
the person who makes this claim that the erotic thriller is a response to the AIDS epidemic is saddled with a couple of problems. The first is that the erotic thriller studiously avoids any talk about sexually transmitted diseases and condoms. People in erotic thrillers, especially late-stage erotic thrillers, have sex with each other under the most frivolous of circumstances, sometimes motivated by two people being in the same room. <laughs> right? No one ever, hardly ever, talks about condoms or sexually transmitted diseases. The, a sexually transmitted disease makes its uh, early appearance in Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, of course. Angie Dickinson has had a one-night stand. The next morning, she's looking for a piece of paper to write the man a note, goes into his desk and finds a doctor, a sort of note from the hospital saying that he has a sexually transmitted disease. This doesn't concretely affect the film at all. She's slashed to death moments later in an elevator. It's cul-de-sac in the movie. It's, it's left to the viewer to try to figure out what it means. But after that, it, the STDs very rarely make appearances. So. Someone who makes this claim that the erotic thriller is a response to the AIDS crisis has to explain to us why they're so studiously avoided. The erotic thriller seems to take place in a fantasy world in which we don't have to worry about that stuff. Was the erotic thriller solely an American product, or did you find them in other countries as well? The named erotic thriller is a specifically American film movement. 90% of them are made in America. However, other English-speaking countries, England and Australia, made some erotic thrillers. Australia, in particular, made Lantana, Ebb Tide, Fever. There's a list of grievous bodily harm, not to be confused with bodily harm starring Linda Fiorentino. There's a number of Australian erotic thrillers that are real good, and they're made, I would say, that America standardized the genre developed its themes and tropes, and developed the named erotic thriller with early films in the 80s and 90s, and particularly like Night Eyes that used an erotic thriller on the cover of its videotape, right? America developed it like film noir. It was a specifically American, and it arose out of the cultural context, that America's response to cultural shifts of the 60s and 70s, American culture trending upscale, technological platforms developed in America for viewing home video content at home, whether that was the VHS tape or cable television. And this expanded, the market expanded into the rest of the world. And so other English territories like England and Australia did make a few erotic thrillers for that market. And they were named erotic thrillers, so they must be included. Ebb Tide starring Harry Hamlin is a fantastic erotic thriller made by an Australian film director. And there was a couple more like it. There are other countries that made erotic thriller type movies, but they weren't part of this wave. And also, if you're researching the erotic thriller, it, when you're looking for influences, part of tracing the lineage of the DTV erotic thriller of the 90s is trying to find who are the influences for this. You'd like to be able to say there's an influence between these movies and, for instance, Japanese sex films of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is itself an amazing and articulated world. A book has been written about these by a man named Jasper Sharp called Behind the Pink Curtain, 
It's an incredible book about an incredible loss, and there were thousands of them made. And I think double or triple the number of erotic thrillers, the Japanese sex thrillers of the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. From interviewing a lot of people, it's important to remember that in the 1980s, when a lot of these directors were just starting to cut their teeth and make movies and looking for movies, in the 1980s, it was difficult to find movies. There wasn't a lot of stuff on videotape. There just wasn't a lot of material out there. And you were unlikely to see a Japanese film like Van Ho's Hidden Desire or any other blind beast. You're probably not going to be able to see a movie like that unless it shows at a local theater, if at all. And so it's difficult to trace the influence of foreign films like Japanese films on the erotic thriller even if the Japanese were working through the same kinds of themes and abstractions on their own at an even earlier time than the American erotic thriller. But I don't consider those movies, of which there are thousands, to be part of the erotic thriller because like film noir, the erotic thriller, as both a term, a a designation, and a marketable video product, that emerged here in America, particularly in Los Angeles, California. You do a remarkable job. Two hours and 45 minutes. I could have honestly sat through another two hours and 45 minutes of this material because you put it together in such an interesting way. You have chapter breaks in there. You've got your detective character, who's basically you, your voice over this detective. How do you even start to, to sort all this stuff out and say, okay, now's a good place. Now we're going to talk about the ceiling fans, or we're going to talk about the red cars. We're going to have this whole section talking about the titles with the magnetic poetry, which was brilliant, by the way. I love that section. So just how do you do it? What's your method to, to tear all this down? I can't even imagine what your original cut was. Thank you for your kind words. That is really great to hear. And I'm so glad that viewers like yourself and other people see these things and like them in the movie. I'm just so glad. And the movie's finding its tribe. People are seeing it and they're responding to it. And it's great. The movie is pretty complicated. It took me seven years to make. And like successive layers of paint over a board, it became progressively more complicated as I developed it. Its current structure is a man who's a kind of near-future archivist and detective discovers the movie's lost and begins looking into them, and hopefully a little bit humorously, but also a bit seriously, begins talking about some of the themes and tropes and abstractions that he's finding in them. As that is happening, you begin interviewing academic writers who have written books about the subject. You begin interviewing directors and writers who have written about them. And there are little suspect report sequences where the actors themselves, some of them, get profiled. As all of that is happening, the movie is divided thematically into a couple of different sections in which certain overarching themes, male-dominated danger, female-dominated romance, and seduction, the sexual content, issues of pornography and art are breached and learn about that stuff. So the movie, in its final form, had numerous layers like paint on a board that had just stacked up, but it did not start that way. When I began making the movie, I saw it as nothing more than my own version of a movie that I respected greatly called Los Angeles Plays Itself. And Tom Jensen's Los Angeles Plays Itself 
is a film essay and documentary about the use of Los Angeles in the movies. The use of Los Angeles as a geographic location, but also as an idea. What is the idea of Los Angeles? And how does Los Angeles feel about that? And people who are outside Los Angeles feel. So his movie is a sort of 360 degree view of Los Angeles in which he looks at it from all these different perspectives, concrete, philosophical, all that. That movie is like a two and a half hour movie. It was like whitewater rafting for me. I just was so enamored with it. I don't think I, anyone that I've ever recommended that film to, I don't think they've ever made it through. But for me, I just thought that was the future. That movie was the future. I saw the, something of the future in that movie. And I wasn't sure what it was, but I knew that when I began developing We Kill for Love, I had no other ambitions for it than to be Los Angeles Place itself, which is film clips and narration. That's all it is. And he inserts some 16 millimeter film of him that he's gone around LA and he's photographed a couple things. There's a couple sequences. But for the most part, it's film clips and narration. I started originally as I was developing the film and writing the film. I began experimenting with putting erotic thriller clips. As I watched erotic thrillers, I began saving sections of them, themes, tropes, and other things I found that were continuous across films, things that reappear, right? Overhead fans, the red car, girls with guns, strippers in jeopardy, death by hot tub. Death by Hot Tub never made it into the movie, but I love that because it's like there are so many scenes in erotic thrillers where people have sex in hot tubs, but just as many where they get killed in hot tubs. The hot tub itself becomes a symbol for the erotic thriller's central abstraction, which is sex is dangerous. Desire is dangerous. Places of physical pleasure become places of physical violence. The hot tub is just a perfect, but it never made it into the movie. I began assembling these trope clusters, these collections of things as I was doing it. And I began experimenting with putting my own voice over it. And I ran into my first problem. In the intervening years since Tom Jensen made Los Angeles plays itself, YouTube had arrived. And YouTube, there were all these young men pouring out of film school and monetizing their knowledge by making YouTube videos where they were just mansplaining film history. And some of these were really good, but I suddenly realized that I didn't want my movie to be a YouTube video. It had to be more complicated than that. And that's when I begrudgingly decided this thing's going to have to have interviews with people. So when I moved to California and began formally developing the film, it was because the writers and directors were out here. So I began searching for writers and directors. At that time, I had no plan to include actors, right? So I began looking for the writers and directors, and I began lining up interviews with the academics. And the academics, Nina K. Martin, who wrote Sexy Thrills, Undressing the Erotic Thriller, and David Andrews, who wrote a book on softcore, which has a large section on the erotic thriller. The book is called Soft in the Middle. I interviewed, those were my first interviews with the academics. And then Douglas Kesey, who wrote the article, They Kill for Love, 
defining the erotic thriller as a film genre. I interviewed him. And during the interview, I told him that I was going to steal his title and for my movie and was going to change They Kill for Love to We Kill for Love. But his wife, who came to pick him up, when I told him this, I said, I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to steal your title for my movie. His wife said, that's not his title. It's my title. I'm the one who invented it. So I don't feel so bad stealing the title because he stole it from his wife. She was the one who came up with it. So I, I thank the Kesey's for a title for my movie. To my original conception of just making it movie clips and narration, I added interviews with the writers and directors and academics. And I felt like I was getting somewhere. And then I had this brainwave. I thought this was like an ingenious idea. I thought it was like, oh my gosh, if I can pull this off, it's going to be work of genius. And the idea was this. Let's imagine that you watched a movie that was made in the 1970s about film noir. The distance between the 70s and film noir is about the same distance between when I made A Week for Love and the erotic thriller era, about 30, 40 years. Let's say you're watching a documentary and actors like Humphrey Bogart and Elizabeth Scott and Alan Ladd and Marie Windsor, they appear in the movie, but when they appear, it's in black and white. And they're dressed like film noir characters, and they're in some film noir kind of space, like an office or a lowly bar of some kind or a mansion, and they talk directly to the camera. But what they talk about is their experience making these movies, what they thought the films were, and what they got out of it. And so my idea to include the actors originally was that I was going to interview them with a tape recorder about their time. I was going to write the interview into a monologue, and then I was going to cinematically, in sequences that are radically different than the rest of the film, I was going to create these erotic thrillery situations that are set in the poolside resort or a Malibu beach house or some bar, and I was going to light them with my magenta and blue lights. And they were going to perform their monologue speaking to the camera in the cinematic sequence. And it would, what it was going to say was that these lost actors, the sirens and seducers of the erotic thriller, Monique Parent and Kira Reed and Doug Jeffrey, that they were like ghosts who were still trapped in that world. That they were still there. And I remember meeting with the director, Lawrence Lanoff, at a cafe in Santa Monica and explaining this brilliant idea that I had to him. And I could see his head shaking no as I was explaining it to him. And Lawrence Lanoff was the nicest man I've ever met. He was just an amazing person. But he told me, Anthony, that is not going to work. It's an interesting idea, creative, but not going to work. You'll never get an actor to do it. And he was right. No actor that I sent that proposal to would even reply to my emails. And so it wasn't until I interviewed Linda Ruth Williams herself in West Hollywood. She was attending a conference in Toronto. I had been hounding her for years. And when I found out she was in a conference in Toronto, I contacted her right away and said, I'll fly out there and interview you. And she said, no, I'll come out to LA after the conference. And so I rented a house in West Hollywood. She showed up with her husband, Mark Kermode, the most famous film critic in England. He sat on the floor during the interview. It wasn't until I interviewed Linda 
that I talked to her about the actors. And I said, Linda, I'm in a bit of an impasse here. I don't know what to talk to the actors about. When I talk to the academics, I know what to talk about. We talk about the themes, the underlying tropes, you know, what the movies and what does it all mean, Elwood? That's what we talk about. When I talk to the practitioners, like the writers and directors, I talk about what kind of movie did they think they were making? Did they use terms like erotic? Were the trials and tribulations of making your movie? I knew how to talk to directors and writers, but I didn't know what to say to actors. And it was Linda who told me, she gave me the kind of skeleton key to, to, to communicating with them. She just said, you have to talk to them about their experience. You have to talk to them. Did they think that what they were making was pornography or not? How did it begin for them? How did it end? What did they do after the films went south and there were no more erotic thrillers? How did they get into the business? And she gave me more at that moment. And I think armed with that conversation, I realized that interviewing the erotic thriller actors was necessary. It was possible. And so I retooled my proposal and I sent it to actors who originally ignored my previous ingenious proposal. And they got back with me right away. I started getting people right away. And then I added actors. So in successive spirals, get the movie started out as just film clips and narration. Then it became film clips, narration, and the academics. Then it became film clips, narration, the academics, and the practitioners, the writers and directors. Then to that, I added actors. And it started getting more complicated with the actors I thought I could do some other sorts of things like profiling each one in a special moment. And then the brainwave finally came when I realized, wait a minute, what if, just like these 1990s erotic thrillers, they all have some camel coat wearing detective character who pounds the pavement interviewing suspects? This character is a fixture of the movies. What if I had my own? person who was like this, who was the sort of detective figure who would lead the audience in. And then the narration wouldn't just be the voice of God. The narration would be this person. And when I stumbled upon that idea that I could place a person in the movie who would be an avatar for me and would be an avatar for the audience and would narrate then I realized the opening of the movie became clear that this person needed to stumble upon some bunker where they, that's where we first see the images of the erotic thriller, the VHS tapes, the posters, the imagery, and that he, in a 2001 A Space Odyssey like moment, he walks toward his big board where he has all the photos and we're blasted out into outer space. But it's erotic thriller outer space. And we see the people then, we see the words, we see the places and locations of the erotic thriller, and we float in the beginning, we float over this environment, and we get closer and closer to the world of the erotic thriller. At first, it's just cityscapes and sunrises, and then we see the ocean, and there's two people, and then we see a building, someone standing, and then we fly through a window, and there's a woman tied to a bed, and a guy walking in the room. And then they start talking. It's as if we start outside the world of the erotic thriller and this detective, like that astronaut in 2001, A Space Odyssey, leads us 
blasts us out into this sort of like special, strange world that the movies inhabit. And so that for me was the final piece of the puzzle was that character in the movie. It's almost the beginning of Psycho, how you're flying through Phoenix and slowly getting into that hotel and into that hotel room. Yeah, starting from outside and moving in. And then the movie, the end, starts from the inside and moves back out again. It ends where it began and go back to seeing the, the sunset, the landscapes. You've left the world of these movies, that world which is Los Angeles. What kind of crew did you have? Because you mentioned the lighting before, and it was a weird thing for me to pick up on, but I just noticed how beautiful the lighting of the interviews was. There were some that were just, they knocked me out. Is that you? Is Do you have a lighting person? Tell me more about your crew, if you even had one. I made this movie by myself. It was one man with two cameras and a cart and a car. A car that was bought that so that it could fit this equipment, so that I could go around doing this movie. Most of the interviews I photographed and lit by myself. I told people I need one hour to set up. And I can't tell you how many days in... Kira Reed's home or in Monique Parent's apartment she was renting or in James Dearden's fabulous mansion in Beverly Hills, where I was just sweating bullets, quickly setting up. And then I was operating the cameras as I was doing the interview. And <clears throat> that happens to be how I make a living. I had, I wouldn't say I'd mastered, but I'd refined the technique of doing two camera interviews with people of all sorts and doing that work alone. I've traveled all over Southern California interviewing religious scholars and scientists and that sort of stuff. And so I show up, I ask for one hour to set up, I set up and I conduct the interview. And so for some interviews, you'll see in the credits at the end, there's some people listed. For some of the interviews, particularly those in remote locations, if I had a friend who was there, someone would help me. So like, for instance, when I interviewed Andrew Stevens in Dallas, my old film school buddy, Marcel Rodriguez lives in the Dallas area. So I stayed with Marcel. He helped me shoot the interview. When I went up to Napa Valley to interview Barry Collier, the former CEO of Prism Home Entertainment, my brother Patrick went up there to Napa Valley and we drank some wine while we were up there. And then here in Los Angeles, my younger brother, Michael, who plays the detective figure in the movie, my younger brother, Michael, who's an actor, he helped me shoot about six or eight interviews here. If Mike was available, I'd say, hey, I'm going to come pick you up. I'm going to go do an interview with Nancy O'Brien, or we're going to go do Monique Parent. Can you come with me? And Mike has been working on independent films for a long time and kind of knows how to do everything. So Mike helped me out. And then when I was in Chicago, my videographer former colleague and friend Chris Petrowski helped me shoot the David Andrews at Odd Obsession video in Chicago. So occasionally I would get someone to help me, but most of the time I worked alone and I don't really recommend it. It would be easier now for me to explain to people that I worked alone because I've made this movie We Kill for Love that is, has been officially distributed and it's on the TV. You can watch it. Like It'd be easier for me to explain to people that I work alone, but while I was making We Kill for Love, often showing up by myself was not an asset. People would say to me, so where's your crew? I would pull up to the home of a woman who's still 
a fabulously good-looking woman who was once a minor celebrity for these erotic thrillers, would knock on the door, and she, there would come a moment when she realized that it's just me, that this all, this, it's difficult not to think that it seemed as I was doing it, it was like this ruse to be alone with these incredibly attractive former celebrities of these films. And when you work with a crew, it just makes us legitimizes it a little bit more when you're showing up with multiple people. But I would always send people the trailer. As I interviewed people, I added people to this trailer I was making. And so it started out with just a couple people. And then I, the trailer had like five and then 10 people and then 20 people. It was like, the trailer looked really good. And so I would tell them, hey, I do this for a living. It's just me. You've seen the trailer. That was all my works. So I made the thing by myself. It was a six-year labor to do this, but I was driven forward by the need to make this thing, and I felt like if I could get two people a month, I was at a pretty good pace. I seem to remember there was some things that happened in 2020 and 2021 that might have slowed down production, or did that actually help you? No. During the pandemic, it completely shut down the production of We Kill for Love, and so during the pandemic because I didn't have much else to do. That was when the time when I, of course, had to watch lots of erotic thrillers and save all the little pieces that were necessary. So I did a lot of that. And then I wrote a long, messy book about the erotic thriller. It's an incomplete book, but I got to something like 350, 400 pages. But it was an opportunity for me to clear my head and think about the genre. And from that book, I took the narration for the film. So the narration is just little pieces of the book. And then also from the book, I wrote a really long, like 60-page article about the genre of the erotic thriller called Crimes of Desire, a case file on the erotic thriller. It was originally published in Diabolique online, Diabolique magazine, Kat Ellinger, who runs that, she just liked it and published it. And then it was revised and updated for an Italian film journal called Lo Specchio Scuro, The Dark Mirror. And so if you go to wekillforlove.com, there's a link to Crimes of Desire, the long article, which addresses a lot of topics that I just couldn't address in the movie. When did you have picture lock? Making a documentary like this is like making a pyramid where there's a really large base and it's about five hours long. And then you whittle it down and you make it a little bit shorter. It's about four and a half hours long. And then it becomes four hours. My goal was to make it two and a half hours long. Just got smaller and smaller as you're working up to the pyramid. And when I finally got to the pyramid about a year and a half ago, I think a year ago, I got to the top and I was just watching it over and over. Then I began producing what I call release candidates. Taken from the software industry, like when Microsoft Windows releases a new version, they think they got it right. They call it release candidate one. And then people find bugs and they have to release candidate two. And I think I'm now up to release candidate 16. I think release candidate 15 was released for the Blu-ray, but release candidate 16 now has been like, is going to be showing at Vidiot's Eagle Theater next Thursday. And the differences between release candidates are extremely minor. Only I would know. But the problem is once you get to the top of the pyramid and the movie has finally taken shape, and I got there about a year ago, then you just discover new little things. And you're like, I got to fix this. And so 
then starts a year of tinkering and producing new release candidate versions of the film and resaving them to all the hard drives that you've hidden all over the place. With the Blu-ray, are there extras? Are there some of the deleted sequences? Because you went from four hours to 2.45? Unfortunately, you're not going to find Death by Hot Tub. One of the most difficult things that I've ever done in my life was passing a two-hour, 45-minute documentary through a law firm which specializes in intellectual property. And the final step before I could get distribution, the final step was you have to have an intellectual property attorney go through your movie with a fine-tooth comb. You have to create databases where you list every single film clip you use. I used clips from 350 different movies in this movie and many different clips. You have the time code in and out for every single clip. You have to have total appearances of that movie in the movie, total appearances of that production company's all their movies in your movie. You have to, every single piece of intellectual property, a poster on the wall, all of this has to be accounted for. And they go through and they call for edits. And they say, no, they say, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then you re-edit the movie and you submit it to them again and they go through it again. And all of this is charged by the hour at insanely high rates. And so you wind up with is an approved spreadsheet and a letter from that company saying, this movie qualifies for fair use under the doctrine of fair use as it is backdated from that first case we had. And it's like a 12-page letter that quotes all the cases that have happened up to yours now, the movie that you just made. And every time you do anything that involves film clips, you got to call the lawyers again. So for the upcoming, I'm not really allowed to announce the coming disc releases. I'm just, my distributors told me to say, just say it's digital releases, but there will be upcoming releases that contain more of the movie, but you're, there won't be any film clips because I can never go back there. I just couldn't go back to going back upstream and like getting the lawyers involved and clearing things. I wish I had the money to reinvest and make all take all the special sequences that were edited out of the movie, like Death by Hot Tub, Strippers in Jeopardy. There's a couple sequences that would have been really fun. Those aren't good. But what we do have is that there are some really prolonged interviews with practitioners about specific aspects of the erotic thriller that I was unfortunately unable to include. One of those is the new role of the intimacy coordinator. Several of my actors work professionally as intimacy coordinators. Another was a great loss to the film, which was called The Sound of Sex. Interviewed composers George S. Clinton and Ashley Irwin about composing music for erotic thrillers, and it didn't make it into the movie, but it will be available at some point. Long interviews about composing music for the movies. There's a lot more material that will be appearing. So what is next for you? The Count of Monte Cristo. I was trapped in the dungeon of these movies for a very long time and became my life and my security blanket and my world. And it was all I did when I went home. It was all I thought about. It was all I planned for. I spent my weekends doing it for six years. And this coming Thursday, the 31st, when it shows at the Vidiot's Eagle Theater, and 
Then it shortly released on digital. It'll be on all digital streaming platforms the day after, September 1st, Friday. That really marks the end of my labors. And I don't really know what to do with myself. I'm not sure what to do in life now. I have to figure out what I need, what I'm going to do next. I still have all these eBay alerts set. Oh my gosh, Widow's Kisses on Laserdisc is available. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't need to buy that stuff anymore. It's over. I still have all these reminders of it. And I'm still thinking, oh, I could get that one person. And then I'm like, no, it's over. You can't, you have to stop thinking about developing this project. So maybe what I'll do is I'll take that long, messy book that I wrote about the erotic thriller and I'll try to, now that the movie is doing a lot of heavy lifting, I'll be able to make the book a little bit more fun and a little bit more entertaining and still have all the things I want there to be in it. And so maybe working up the book will give me something to do. For people that have never experienced these movies, do you have a few favorites that you can recommend? My tastes in erotic thrillers are pretty idiosyncratic. So I really think that when it comes to the movies, find out what you like and find out what film directors are making the ones you like and watch more of those. If you like the ethereal stories of suburban alienation that aren't noirish, that aren't crime thrillers, then the Axis films and the Gregory Dark movies are for you. Secret Games, Animal Instincts, Object of Obsession, Carnal Crimes. Axis made about 25 of these things that are these diffuse, ethereal movies about early urban alienation, and they're psychologically penetrating, and they're amazing. If you like your erotic thrillers, like fun girls with guns, and they're like almost like madcap, Get the Jim Wynorski, Fred Olin Ray erotic thrillers, Possessed by the Night, Sorceress, Virtual Desire, Masseuse 1 through 3, Escort 1 through 3. Find those movies. Jim Wynorski, Fred Olin Ray, Gary Graver. I call it the boys club in the movie. You know, that boys club of directors who made those popcorn munching fun movies. If you like your erotic thrillers romantic and beautiful and a little bit weightless, weightless almost in the same way that a Hallmark Christmas movie is weightless, like I like them, right? Some of my favorite erotic thrillers were made by Playboy working under three clandestine film imprints, Cameo Pictures, Mystique Films, and Indigo Entertainment. And those movies, Jane Street, Walnut Creek, Guarded Secrets, Gentleman's Bet, those are my favorite erotic thrillers. The Cameo Mystique Indigo erotic thrillers are just lovely movies. Lovely movies. So I recommend starting there. The erotic thrillers tribal and these different tribes made the movies and the Axis films the Boys Club, Andrew Stevens and Company, and then the Playboy films. And there are others. So that's where I think if you're going to set out as on your little boat on the open ocean of the erotic thriller, start with one of those companies that specializes in certain kind of thematic erotic thrillers and start with there. I think there's very few people 
who get into the erotic thriller and they want to see more, there's very few people that aren't really enchanted and amazed by the high strangeness and psychological nature of the Gregory Dark erotic thrillers. And Animal Instincts 2, I think, is a deathless work of art. By the way, thank you for putting Andrew Stevens' name in a box in the end credits. I'd hope that he liked that, and I think that he did. He sent me a long, nice email after he saw the film, and he approved. Yeah, Andrew Stevens will always be in a box for us, and his name will always be special. He started it all with Night Eyes. Anthony, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate all your time that you've given me tonight. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been great talking about these movies. Mm-hmm.